Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. We are back with our look at the book of Mosiah and the Abinadi chapters more specifically. Last episode, we were introduced to King Noah and Abinadi. It's fascinating to me how the fate of these two characters are so closely linked. It's the rise of King Noah that prompts the preaching of Abinadi, and Noah's eventual execution of Abinadi foretells the manner of his own death. This becomes all the more interesting when we take into account what these two figures stand for, the power of the state and prophetic power. And now that we've been introduced, it's time to see this drama unfold, and this brings us to Mosiah 12 in about 150 BC. Two years have passed since the end of chapter 11. We aren't explicitly told this, but Abinadi has had to flee for his life in that time. We don't know where he went, but at the beginning of chapter 12, Mormon tells us that Abinadi came among them in disguise, that they knew him not, and began to prophesy. I said last time that prophets haven't always been presidents. Abinadi has to obscure his identity to even try and carry out his mission. His message is once again one of destruction. The people haven't repented, and the Lord uses Abinadi to specifically list out the consequences of their wickedness. Mormon, the careful author, will make sure that we don't just get these prophecies, but that we know when and how they are fulfilled. Abinadi tells the people they will be brought into bondage, that's fulfilled in Mosiah 21, devoured by wild beasts, fulfilled in Alma 2, that King Noah's life would be valued even as a garment in a hot furnace, that's fulfilled in Mosiah 19, that they'll become beasts of burden, fulfilled again in Mosiah 21, They'll be smitten by the winds of destruction. Limhi says in Mosiah 7 that this was fulfilled, and so on. But, the Lord says, Even though they will be utterly destroyed, they shall leave a record behind them, and I will preserve them, that is, the records, for other nations which shall possess the land. Yea, even this will I do, that I might discover the abominations of this people to other nations. And we have all seen that one fulfilled. The production of a record that, according to the Lord, is meant to get us to not just focus on righteous people or prophets, but the abominations of people. And that's not a fun thing to focus on, but we can put that in the context of the bigger picture that the Book of Mormon is meant to be a tool for gathering Israel. These lessons can be instructive to the covenant people in the latter days for what not to do. As a side note, this has to be one of those moments that gave Mormon pause. He is the one tasked with compiling and abridging these records. He's our guide. That's a heavy burden. Thousands of years of history. The utter destruction of peoples. All for the production of a record. And you are the one charged with making sure that that record gets produced. And there's all of these little clues that he has to pick up on along the way about what to include and what not to include. What an amazing feat he accomplished. We don't know how long Abinadi was allowed to preach this way in disguise. It could have been some time or he could have immediately been arrested. But in verses 9 through 16, 
we see that he is taken captive, and he's brought before the king. So many scriptural parallels immediately come to mind here, but I'm just going to go with the one that I think we are meant to see, that of Moses. Like Moses, Abinadi has come prophesying plagues. Like Moses, Abinadi stands against the king, and we'll see that this comparison bears other fruits. Abinadi's crime? Challenging the king, maybe even threatening his life. Mormon makes sure that we know that it's the people who take Abinadi captive and bring him before Noah. The people say, And now, O king, what great evil hast thou done? Or what great sins have thy people committed, that they should be condemned of God or judged of this man? And now, O king, behold, we are guiltless, and thou, O king, hast not sinned. Therefore this man has lied concerning you, and he has prophesied in vain. And behold, we are strong. We shall not come into bondage, or be taken captive by our enemies. Yea, and thou hast prospered in the land, and thou shalt also prosper. Behold, here is the man, we deliver him into thy hands. Thou mayest do to him as seemeth good. Gross. But seriously, who are you trying to fool, people? Notice the link that the people are making between the king's righteousness and their own righteousness, or the king's innocence and their own innocence. This isn't about Noah. This is about themselves. Sometimes I think we give too much credit to leaders, especially bad leaders. They get all of the attention. Mosiah certainly gives Noah a lot of attention in his speech at the end of the book of Mosiah. But the Lord is not letting these people off the hook. Noah is getting called out, yes, but the people have to be held accountable. We are strong, they say. And what's the evidence that they give for their righteousness, their guiltlessness, their indomitable strength? It's their prosperity. Jeez, Abinadi, get with the program. Love it or leave it. Yuck. It's difficult to even read these self-justifications. Let's move on. In verses 17 through 24, we begin the trial of Abinadi. The drama here is the stuff of movies. In fact, it would make a fantastic film. There's King Noah and all of his opulence. His priests, who we will see, are far more dangerous than he is. They weren't born into power that we know of. They found a way to exploit the vanity of somebody who was. They are the truly lethal ones. Among the priests, there's someone who catches our eye just for a moment, a young man caught up in the cultural momentum of power and corruption. We have to think that our main source of information here is that young man, Alma. Who knows what he's thinking as they drag the lone Abinadi out of prison. No doubt this sad figure seems simple compared to the wealth, sophistication, and self-importance of the king's court. If prosperity is the mark of righteousness, Abinadi lacks enough bling to merit consideration. But then, something doesn't go according to plan. Clearly, the priests underestimate who they are dealing with. As Mormon tells it, to their astonishment, this simple man withstands them in all of their questions and did confound them in all of their words, so they stop playing games and get serious. This is in Mormon's words. And it came to pass that one of them said unto him, What meaneth the words which are written, and which have been taught by our fathers, saying, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring forth Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people, 
He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It turns out these priests aren't dummies. They don't just quote the scriptures. They quote the scripture. This is Isaiah 52, 7-10. We talked about it when we were studying King Benjamin's speech. This is the scripture that Paul uses to describe Jesus' messianic mission. This is where Paul gleans the word gospel from. There are just a few prophecies that might stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with this in capturing the total fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, but just a few. To give a little refresher as to what Isaiah is prophesying here, Jerusalem has been destroyed. The people oppressed, scattered, or killed. Jerusalem is a waste place, but it was supposed to be a city on a hill. And at the center of that city was God's throne room, the temple. But all of that is lost. And all that is left are the reminders of what once was. But then the watchmen of the city see something. There's a messenger who appears on one of the hills surrounding Jerusalem, maybe even the Mount of Olives. And his message? Glad tidings. Thy God reigneth. The king is on his throne again. You are free. The Lord has redeemed Jerusalem, and he did it in a way that the whole world could witness. There is now no doubt who the Lord's people are. Have joy, be comforted, and sing. It's a beautiful scripture, filled with hope for a future day when all of the prophecies have been fulfilled. But here's the real question. Why are the priests asking about it? Well, Professor Joseph Spencer, who I've cited before, and who has actually agreed to come on the podcast for an interview, we're still trying to figure out when that will happen, thinks he has an idea of what is going on here. Remember I, Zenith, Zenith the new Nephi, Zenith the one who wanted to redeem the promised land, restore the temple and the kingdom? Well, it sounds like Noah and the priests think it's mission accomplished. In fact, they even say that this prophecy has been, quote, taught by their fathers. That's kind of ambiguous. It could refer to any number of fathers, but let's assume that it at very least refers to the founding fathers, or better yet, the restoring fathers of the Zenophites. It's possible that they had the intention of fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 57 and establishing Zion in the promised land. And if the evidence is the prosperity of the kingdom, Noah and his priests are feeling pretty good about the potential that they may have actually pulled it off and that Isaiah was talking about them. That might seem like a bit of a stretch, but it's not. It's actually pretty common. Think about how often people associate the United States with the fulfillment of Book of Mormon prophecies. I've even seen people draw American flags on certain verses. Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just pointing out that Zenith's attempt to fulfill prophecy and Noah's belief that he is fulfilling prophecy is pretty darn relatable. Now, I could see some pushback here. What about the wickedness? How could they think that they are justified in having multiple wives and having concubines and in living in such extravagance? But that answer is pretty easy too. They could say, as did the people during the time of Jacob, look at David, look at Solomon. That was the golden age of Jerusalem. Look how many wives they had. Nobody was wealthier or wiser than Solomon. And this kingdom that Isaiah sees being restored, isn't it supposed to be the kingdom of David? Jacob has already addressed those justifications, of course, but it doesn't mean that people will stop reaching for them forevermore. So let's suspend our judgment of Noah and his priests just for a second. We all know that they are terrible people, but let's imagine that they have successfully convinced themselves 
that they are the fulfillment of Isaiah 52. And let's imagine that they think they are completely justified in their wickedness. If we can believe that for a second, then we go back to Isaiah 52. Aren't the messengers of God supposed to bring glad tidings? Abinadi isn't bringing glad tidings. He's preaching destruction. He's trying to say that Zion hasn't been established or redeemed. And that all of these people are either going to be put into bondage, or they'll be utterly destroyed and devoured by the beasts of the forest. What do you have to say for yourself, Abinadi? You're going against the scripture of all scriptures. We get the beginning of Abinadi's response in verses 25 through 37. Are you priests and pretend to teach this people and understand the spirit of prophesying and yet desire to know of me what these things mean? I say unto you, woe be unto you for preventing the ways of the Lord. For if ye understand these things, ye have not taught them. Therefore, ye have perverted the ways of the Lord. Ye have not applied your hearts to understanding. Therefore, ye have not been wise. Therefore, what teach ye this people? Shots fired. If you don't get this, then what are you even teaching, he seems to say. I promise you that if these priests had any image of themselves that they felt they needed to project to the people, it's that they were wise, especially in the scriptures. They are not going to let Abinadi get out of this trial alive. The priests say that they teach the law of Moses, of course. Then Abinadi puts them on blast, as my students would say. Teaching the law really isn't the point. It's about keeping the law, not setting your heart upon riches or exploiting women. He's got them on their heels. They can't deny what he's saying. Then he hits them again. And what know ye concerning the law of Moses? Doth salvation come by the law of Moses? What say ye? Noah and his priests think they've been saved. They're living in the kingdom of God. And Abinadi is on a mission to dismantle that lie. And it all hinges on a fancy word called soteriology, or the theory of how one is saved. The priests are still putting on the charade of being the ones authorized to administer the law. They say that salvation does come by the law of Moses. That's their theory of salvation. These priests have corrupted the law, though, and turned it into a smokescreen to justify their sins. They've made the law about their own righteousness, and Abinadi isn't going to play into that. He responds, I know if ye keep the commandments of God, ye shall be saved. Yea, if ye keep the commandments which the Lord delivered unto Moses in the mount of Sinai, saying, I am the Lord thy God, who hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything in heaven above, or things which are in the earth beneath. The law, according to Abinadi, can't be about them. It has to be about worshiping God above everything else. That's his theory of salvation. If you are truly liberated, it's because the Lord brings you out of bondage, just like he did with Moses. Salvation doesn't come by the law. It comes from God. He'll continue to talk about this into the next chapter, but he's already kind of encapsulated this point here. Have you done all this? He asks them. Nay, ye have not. And have ye taught this people that they should do all these things? I say unto you, Nay, ye have not. That's it for chapter 12, and Abinadi's just getting warmed up. Soon, he'll be glowing. Literally. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.